the themes that are staring us in the face uh, as we look at the, I guess, uh, the outcomes here, which look a bit more certain now than uh, maybe they uh, had at this time yesterday evening. Let's maybe start off just by, you know, the people who did show up in relation, of course, to the broader universe of people who are eligible to vote. I think that's a good starting point because in many ways uh, it might also influence how we interpret this result. What do you make of that? Well, we do have the lowest voter turnout. I think we're going to have that confirmed by tomorrow um, that we've had in a local government election since the dawn of democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, We're looking at less than 10 million people who showed up um, to the polls. And although that, um, in terms of voter turnout, based on registered voters, um, is only about 45% or so of the of the voter turnout for registered voters. In, like, as you call it, the universe of voters, there are 27 million odd um, South, Africans, South Africans who are 18 years and older and who are eligible to vote who did not participate. That's where we are. We're at less than 10 million versus 27 million people who are watching this who did not participate in it some by choice, some by default, but um, it is really telling that people are not as engaged in the electoral process as we would probably like them to be if we um, value um, what democracy and particularly Mm. this part of our democracy um, actually produces for us. Talk to me about the class implication of all of this. Um, I mean, when, when we talk about the low turnout and in particular the low youth turnout, is it distinguished by, I guess, where we're looking at? So would you find a lot more of the incidences of that in townships and in many of the villages in our country as opposed to, say, the suburbs? Because I guess the anecdotal experiences we've heard over the last few days or so really indicate that there are parts of the country where people really came out in full force, even brought their children who are not of voting age to the, uh, to the ballot. And uh, in some other places, uh, I guess, you know... Um, hours would pass without anybody coming in. Yeah, so traditionally um, with local government elections, um, it has been that um, rural areas have had lower voter turnouts than urban um, centers, and particularly suburban um, centers. So there is a a class dynamic, particularly in the urban context. And um, we often thought about that as an indicative of people not really... Um, understanding the way in which local government politics works. So it's easier to think about um, the voting at national and provincial level because it's, it's a much more direct line. You vote for a party, that party puts in parliamentarians, those parliamentarians elect a president. Here the system is more complicated. There's ward councillors, there's PR councillors, there's council, it's um, where mayors come in, it's a municipality versus a district. I think people don't understand the lay of the land, so they don't, again, know what they are voting for very often. And more importantly, they also don't know how accountability works after they are voted. Again, at the national and provincial level, um, there's a a more of a clear line of sight, even in terms of how you remove a president. It's easier for a voter in South Africa to conceive of how to remove a president than how to remove their ward councillor down the road that they voted for. And all of that plays into the idea that We've minimized the role and the, the, the importance of lo- local government election because we haven't explained how it works. Mm. And we also haven't explained really um, all the functions of local government. And so we think, oh, it's just the ward councillor. But the council is going to be delivering your water and your sanitation, not the minister of water and sanitation. And so those kind of nuances, I think, 
um, are part of the, the way in which the voting patterns um, come out. And um, I think it plays into some of the class dimensions, but it's, it's a general voter education issue as well. Mm. And I guess, you know, the, this issue of civic education becomes very important because, you know, this is but one thing in the democratic process. There, there would be many others. I mean, there would be IDP meetings that are called, ward committee meetings that are called, uh, you know, uh, ward councillors themselves might sit in a municipal public accounts committee to oversee how the administration might have spent that money. One just gets a sense that there's seldom that feedback loop that comes back and says, hey, actually, you guys voted for us, and this is some of the stuff we encountered when we got there. Here are some of the challenges. Here are some of the concerns. As part of this educational and very civic-minded process, um, whose responsibility is that? Is that the political parties themselves? Uh, because you know, one of our voice notes was saying earlier on that a big part of why there was a low turnout is the disappointment of many ANC voters with the inability of the ANC to resolve uh, the unfolding social reproductive crisis that we see at a municipal level um, and no framework for them to be able to ventilate that. Um, I mean, do you agree with that? And I guess, you know, in the context of all of the institutions and processes that we have, uh, do those need a rethink um, alongside the civic education? Yes, so I think that the the political parties must take responsibility for the slow voter turnout and for the gaps in voter education. Um, maybe even first, I, I would say the IEC might be in a battle for who's more responsible than political parties. But in light of what you were just saying about how ANC voters have been feeling and that sense of being disenfranchised, is that um, at the heart of our, our political culture is the idea that parties are a proxy for us. And so even when we have the opportunity to vote directly for Ward Councillor A who lives in our street, we think about that councillor through the lens of the party. So when people feel disappointed by the party, when the party is in disarray, when the party is coming back to you, I think Minister um, Fikilem said it well earlier today when he said, you know, we went to people promising them electricity during a blackout for people who haven't had electricity for three years. So the party has a reputational issue, and I think ANC voters um, have been grappling with that in this election, and we've seen it in the polls. Mm. Um, but also parties need to take responsibility for the idea that they are the animators of our democracy. Sure. They are the ones that have to bring to life what democracy will look like if we give them the opportunity to govern. And I don't think that many people are animated by politics anymore mm. and animated by governance anymore. They can't see how governance will work. And it's the responsibility of a political party not only to say, this is what I promise, but this is how it will be delivered. And I was saying about the, the manifestos and reading manifestos before this election, that there was way too much of a wish list of what's and wait too little about the how governance will, will happen. Because the education, voter education, isn't just about the logistics and the process. That largely is the responsibility of the IEC. Know that when to register, where you need to be, voting mm. districts, all of those things. And yes, they also have, a, you know, a, a broader civic um, responsibility about how the process works. But actually, the, the, re, the motivation to vote it's political. It's about mm. how power is going to be used. And that lies with political parties. They need to do the yeah. education to their voters that says, this is the way the system works, and this is the way we will use the power you give us to work it. Mm. You know, Tessa, 
I, I find it so interesting because I guess if, if one goes even to a microscopic level, at the level of wards, um, and, I'm, and I want us to, to take a look at one here, to maybe try and r- grapple with this issue of whether or not we've seen a reversal into ethno-national politics, into higher calls for federalism, which was a big part of, I guess, what was happening in the 90s, uh, as people are growing disaffected by, I guess, uh, a project of creating a unitary state, uh, but also this project of really trying to, you know, animate uh, the role of collective political action in changing our lives. Uh, people are uh, probably think, you know, going uh, more into uh, uh, the religious realm, uh, you know, um, and even other realms as redemptive uh, more than maybe politics, uh, uh, which I guess is, is somewhat of a shift of things in South Africa. But there's a ward in Gabecha, which I find very interesting uh, as an entry point into some of these things. Now, this is Ward 25. And if you just look at Ward 25 with the numbers that have come through, uh, it's neck and neck between the ANC and the DA. ANC 38.94%. The DA is at 38.8%. The EFF coming in at 7.22%. But... If you look at the different voting stations in that same uh, ward, it becomes quite clear what I'm trying to get at. So on the one hand, there's uh, what was called the Peter Rademeyer Hall, which is in Alcoa Park, traditionally a sort of white working class area and, um, you know, colored area as well. Uh, and then on the other side of the road is, uh, of course, the township of Zuide uh, and that, uh, the voting station at uh, the Garrett Methodist Church. Uh, and if you look at the numbers, I mean, on the other side of Zuida, 75% for the ANC, around 11% for the EFF and the defenders of our people coming in at 7%. And then on the other side, Peter Rademeyer Hall, DA, 64.83%, the ANC, 16%, Frey Hates Front Plus, 6.88%. This, in many ways, I guess, is a microcosm, uh, Tessa, of um, the enduring legacy of ethno-nationalist markers, you know, and uh, of course, social divisions as a driver of electoral outcomes. So I've heard a lot of people talk about, I guess, you know, perceptions of service delivery, accounting for why people disengaged or why people voted in a particular way. Uh, But um, I mean, how much in this election has really been driven by, uh, you know, identity politics, ethno-nationalism, and uh, as some people have suggested, I guess, uh, tribalism as well. Yeah, um you can't say South Africa without thinking about identity. Mm. Um, that's just, it, it's one of the endemic parts of our, um, our psyche and our, our politics. Um, but more importantly, in the context of a, a local government election, um, trust is such a high currency. And um, trust is usually built through social mechanisms rather than political ones. Um, trust is built through social mechanisms rather than economic ties. Um, and so, uh, we, we, you know, in terms of race relations, our country is still um, very racially divided geographically. And so the people around you are generally going to be people who look like you. Mm. So um, when parties take um, particular lines that um, seek to appeal to particular racial groups and particular histories of those racial groups, I think one of the parties that's probably... Um, the least shy about that positioning is the FF Plus. I mean, the FF Plus is even talking very proudly about the ways in which it's co- co-opted, I will say, um, black and colored leaders for black and colored communities um, because they're, they're dealing with the reality of South Africa. 
is that they know they're not going to be trusted in a black or colored community to lead there. But they know that people from that community may be more trusted. And so for me, it's not, it's, again, those things are not surprising. Um, but what is starting to, to come out of that is smaller parties have been emerging. And a lot of the smaller parties have actually been very identity-specific mm. and identity-driven. So there's a party in the Western Cape called ECOSA. ECOSA is a long-term study in um, colored identity politics, mm. meeting real politics and really contesting for power. And it, it started off as kind of a church group that has evolved into a multi-ward party in the Western Cape that really puts forward its agenda as being um, for Western Cape people who feel marginalized in small towns. Um, the PA has taken a similar turn in the last few years. Um, I come from El Dorado Park, and it's hard to walk through El Dorado Park without seeing um, black and lime green um, just about everywhere. And what the PA has done is they haven't showcased a Gaten McKenzie, the national leader. They've gone to church leaders that have been leading in that community forever, and they've used and um, taken up struggles that say, we as colored people have been marginalized. And so if you look at the character mm. of small parties that are emerging, a lot of them are forming around identity politics. They're forming around um, not only race, but also class, mm. ethnicity, because, again, it's about trust. And it's about um, the fact that we are not yeah. an integrated society. We're just a society of many communities living yeah. next to each other. Tessa? And there's been a draw in as Tessa? opposed to a push out. Hold the line there for me for a second. We're going to take a quick spot break. And when we come back, uh, I want us uh, to unpack many of these unresolved issues. It is indeed. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy. 18 minutes it is uh, before 9 p.m. And I'm in conversation with Tessa Dooms, uh, political commentator, youth worker, social analyst and director at Jasora Consulting. It does seem, Tessa, that uh, yeah, it takes a long time for these old... Uh, what do they call it? Uh, there's an English turn of phrase. Uh, old ghosts never rest or something like that. Um, and I think th the point you're making is that all of these structural and endemic features of South African society have come out in full blast here. Um, be it um, a semblance of some Zulu nationalism, uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, colored nationalism, uh, and of course the retreat to Alaga. We saw this already in the 2019 elections with the resurgence of the Frey Aids Front Plus among uh, the Africana uh, communities as well. Um, and of course, I guess we've also seen in this election the re-emergence of this notion of federalism. Uh, in, if you think about the Cape Independence Party and their call for secession uh, and how that shares a common bedfellow among certain uh, groupings, and I just forget the name of, uh, I think it's the Cape Colored Congress, uh, which holds a similar view that actually, you know, the Cape can be seen as a distinct political identity outside of South Africa, which um, in a way, I guess, undoes an entire nearly sort of 100-year process of trying to entrench this idea of a unitary state uh, that South Africa is, uh, uh, least of all, since the very early 20th century. What do you make of those trends, I guess, that have emerged during this election? Yeah, I think the um, Cape Exit um, crew mm. are really an extreme form of um, a cry that many South Africans are having, which isn't necessarily about federalism in terms of the idea of exiting the state, but federalism in terms of the devolution of power. 
that I think is the core thing that many South Africans agree on at this point, is they want power to come down from being centralized in one party, centralized in national government, centralized in the office of the president, and they want to feel power back in their communities. They want to feel empowered to act. They want to feel empowered to do something. So I'll give you an example of that um, in Dipsalut last week, Mm. where community members were asking, what are our um, chances of being able to criminally charge a councillor or a party who does not deliver? That, for me, signals people wanting power. Mm. People saying, I want the power back in my hands. Um, or people saying, I don't want to have to sit in a situation where if I want something done or changed or I want to complain, I have to go to a centralized political party's head office and then they tell me I must produce my, my card, my membership card, before they help me. And so that speaks about an idea that devolution is where, where we are at right now. People don't want to be um, held captive by two or three big parties somewhere there in the sky. And our electoral system at local level, I think, allows for that a lot more. Um, but at national level, we still haven't gotten to the point where we are flexible to that. And we might have to have that conversation about our electoral system and whether people are happy about what power it delivers to them mm. and what accountability lies in the system. Yeah. We tend to forget sometimes, Tessa, that a lot of what we designed the system for was to re- resolve an impasse and a crisis associated with our transition. So it's like, you know, designing something in a crisis and then uh, allowing it to have a path dependence where we sometimes feel that we can't question, disentangle, dismantle it and maybe start it over uh, from a design perspective. And you make a really excellent point. We designed the system to um, cater for the representation of minorities. So it shouldn't boggle our minds that when the system um, seems to be failing, we then resort to uh, minority interests and minority groups because the system actually encourages that. The system encourages you to act as a minority if you want some representation um, that moves away from that centralized power. And again, we need to think about, is that fit for purpose for today? People might be doing that because the system allows it. Mm. People might be doing that out of habit. But is there, again, a new animating idea that can get people to think beyond um, the enclaves. And, and the example that I will make here is young people, because I think that 27 million we spoke about earlier is young people going into their enclave and they're pulling away from the system in large part, but they aren't a minority. They are a majority. Hmm. And so this system is not created for a majority of people who feel like they are being marginalized to actually say this is not working for us or to participate in, um, mm. I think, new and interesting ways. Do the political parties who we vote for and the ones, as you said, are expected to animate um, our political and social life have the machinery that is able, one, to not only listen and appreciate the disaffection and the points of disaffection of many of that silent majority and, of course, confront them in time for some subsequent elections because I guess this is also this election is a signal of the crisis of the political party at a local level Uh, you know people might have the debate to say hey you know branches of this or the other organization are vibrant are this or that but clearly if you're not getting people to go out and vote speaks volumes about I guess how vibrant and effective uh, those local level structures that are the primary unit of the organization are 
Yeah, and I think that um, one thing the rise of the new party has not given us is a challenge to the model of political party we have accepted as the norm, and that is the ANC. The ANC's structure, their machinery, the way they organize themselves has become the default um, in our political imagination of what a party is. And so even as smaller parties come up and say, we're different from the ANC, they then end up with the same structures with different names. You call it Senate, I call it Federal Council, I call it the NEC, Mm. you call it the Command, all operating under the same model. If we think about a political party in the USA, um, the Democratic Party in the USA is a completely different political animal to the ANC. In the way that it forms, it doesn't have the same kind of um, what the ANC calls democratic centralism. It's very loosely arranged almost, but it operates and it functions. And in a two-party system, it gets, you know, one, once, one, one, at one moment it wins and another it loses and so forth. But I think that that is something that we need. We need political parties that look and feel different again and are fit for purpose for the day and responding to what people want today. If we all model ourselves against one um, template of what the political party is, we will stagnate, and that's what we're seeing. Mm, mm. Tessa, I want you to hold the line there for me for a second again. We're going to take a few voice notes on the other side and uh, we'll wrap up our chat uh, with uh, Tessa Dooms, uh, director at Chasora Consulting, after this. Sure, sure, Buddha. From East London. Um, for, from my own opinion and from my own, my honest view, is that what we're dealing with here is that we're dealing with a story of South Africa that is continuously changing. Mm. And at the same time, we're dealing with an ANC that is grappling to find its feet. And its electoral base is just simply disappearing, like just simply vanishing through the air while we're looking. Like this is a moment of 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 reflection for everyone. And... I don't know if maybe we're under a new constitution or if still b- abiding by the new, by the old constitution that we had in the older times. But these are interesting times, certainly indeed. Yeah, thank you very much for that comment. I mean, I think that's true. Uh, that uh, in some shape or form, it feels like a call in Duenzaga. Something's changing. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's hear the other voice note. I won't lie, yeah, uh, Tessa, let me get your views, I guess, in relation to those two voice notes. I think the first one from the gentleman in East London, uh, suggesting that actually a lot of what we're seeing is also linked to social change. I mean, if I just think about our municipal boundaries, um, you know, voting blocks, especially in wards like, I mean, I was, we're looking at a ward yesterday. Uh, there's Deep Sloot in that ward, there's Stain City in that ward, there's, you know, all manner of things uh, and places happening there, different distribution of class. Now, if you went to the elections in 2000, you probably might have seen a different picture uh, because a lot of what is there now might not have been there. Uh, so there's also that type of very physical and, and visceral change that people can see. And then maybe on the second comment there around, I guess, the involvement of young people, not just in electoral politics, but I guess in, in broader civic life. Yeah, um, I do think that we are um, at an inflection point if we choose to see it. Um, yesterday, there was this moment of kind of um, a collective gasp on social media when people heard 30% 
um, for the turnout um, at that first IEC briefing. And, and I wanted that feeling to stay. I knew the number would go up, but I wanted the feeling to stay. Um, for people really to get a sense of just how much of a crisis this is for our democracy and how much um, our country is yearning for something different, um, a different kind of politics. Um, when, when we think about the lay of the land, um, we need more than just uh, drawing the boundaries differently. We need to actually say the boundary must be drawn with Stain City and Big Slaughter are in the same place mm. so that that community um, forces is forced to have a conversation with each other that says we are actually one place. We are actually one country. Um, I think also the Ju- July riots were an opportunity again for us to have that conversation with ourselves. It says we actually cannot continue to live in different South Africans, and part of our political mandate must be about seeing each other and recognizing that our fates are interlocked with each other. Mm, mm. Where do young people fit into this? I am not going to tell young people to vote. Sure. I'm going to tell young people to prize their vote and vote for something worth voting for. And I'm also going to tell young people, become the people we can vote for. Mm. I want to vote for the young people of this country. I believe in the young people of this country. Um, I've made a decision that I want to put young people into power in this country. And so I'm, uh, my generational mission is to make sure the young people of this country understand that I'm ready to vote for them and my generation will rally around them. Because I don't think it's about young people voting. It's about young people's political participation as a general principle. If all we do is treat them as voters, we're treating them as, number one, beneficiaries of some, some kind, mm. and passive beneficiaries at that. But number two, we're also treating them as tokens. You know, um, their vote is useful, but they can't lead, and they can't be partnered with, and we don't recognize what they do. And so for, for me, there's a, a desire for a broad political participation of youth to be recognized. Not simply just, hey, he must go and vote. Hmm. Tessa, a last one, and uh, it's a real pity that we're running out of time. I got a tweet earlier on from uh, Obi-Wan Shinobi on uh, Twitter, at Marco Ezko, uh, saying, does it hurt you to see pan-Africanism being loudly rejected by the masses? Now, uh, I mean, I guess he's not talking necessarily just about the pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, but uh, I think uh, what he's referring to there is this idea uh, of... A broader African nationalism as a response to the tensions between Africans who happen to have been born within the confines of the southern parts of the Limpopo, uh, vis-a-vis many of those who come here as migrants looking for economic opportunity, and how that has been a critical political football in all of this. Think about the EFF Action SA, and I guess, uh, uh, you know, even the a very weak showing of some of the more leftward of the ANC by way of African nationalist organizations, uh, Azapo, PAC, and others. Uh, just your thoughts on that, and uh, I guess uh, the retreat to a very narrow uh, uh, form of um, politics, uh, especially around the questions of immigration and uh, the role of migrants in the South African labor market and economic opportunity. Yeah, you know, one, one of the things that this election uh, has taught us as well is that uh, South Africans are a place where um, fear fear has gripped our hearts. Mm. And politicians have decided to play on our fears. And xenophobia has been one of those um, areas where fear can be um, stoked. 
And again, I think this is a question about um, not only um, moving to a broader understanding of identity politics, but also a broader understanding of economics, a broader understanding of, uh, you know, social cohesion. Um, and I think that we need to see the ways in which South Africa benefits from being part of an African collective, as opposed to the ways in which it's been highlighted that we are somehow threatened by mm. being part of a broader collective. If we look at other countries in the continent, the, the ability to balance out, if you're in Ethiopia, the, the national identity of the country, which is a very deeply nationalist country, sure. no doubt about sure. it. But it's made economic decisions, it's made border control decisions that says that we recognize that our future is linked to those around us. I think just that simple message um, changes the perspective from fear to possibility. That's really where we need to be when it comes to all issues, including our own issues internal to the country. Um, like I said earlier, sanctity and deep sleep people need to realize their fates are interlinked in the same way that Zimbabweans and South Africans need to realize our fates are interlinked. That alone can take us to a very different direction mm. about how we see the opportunities rather than um, this fear-mongering yeah. that we're accepting. Tessa, we'd have to leave it there. A real pleasure uh, catching up with you, and thank you very much uh, for so generously sharing of your time. And, uh, yeah, have yourself a great evening. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks, Aya. That there was uh, Tessa Dooms, uh, director of uh, Jasora Consulting, a social commentator, youth worker as well, uh, joining us uh, this evening uh, for our analysis of the local government elections. 9 p.m. is the time. We'll leave it there for tonight. Back with you again tomorrow. Big thank you, Josna Chola, for putting together this great product. My bona nekseni takes strength, my African, and go go sisaibanga le economy.